I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is Tom Clementi, CEO of UK government-backed terrorism reinsurer Pool Re. Now over 30 years old, Pool Re has been through a lot of recent changes that have reflected its growing maturity. It's been classified as a central government organisation by the Office for National Statistics and the UK Cabinet Office designated it as an arm's-length body of the UK Treasury. To add to that formalisation, which reflects its public role and unlimited state guarantee, Pulri is moving from its tariff-led facultative reinsurance structure to a more sophisticated treaty relationship with its members. Add to this the heightened sense of geopolitical risk in the world in 2024 and new UK legislation around safeguarding against the terror threat, and Tom and I have a lot to talk about. This is a really lively discussion that covers the state of the global terrorism market, a frank assessment of the UK's terror threat, and Paul Rees' continued role in making and growing a private market well-funded enough to relieve pressure on the strained public purse. Tom's a great guest and his insights will give anyone wondering how successful public-private partnerships can be fostered a lot of excellent pointers. Enjoy the podcast. Tom, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Thank you very much. For anyone who doesn't know you, why don't you just give a very quick resume of your career to date and how you got into this role? My working life to date. Well, I started off as a lawyer at Linklaters. I qualified into the corporate department there. Didn't last very long at Linklaters. Wasn't really for me. Went off and did an MBA and then worked in the Lloyd's insurance market for a number of years, ending up at MS Amlin and then joined Pool Re in April of 2022. Well, that was very brief. Now, Pool Re, a lot going on. The biggest part that you're trying to change is moving from, I suppose, what's currently a facultative reinsurance model, risk by risk, to a treaty model. Why don't you run me through that? Why are you doing it? And then what might change? When Pool Re was set up some 30 years ago, it was never intended to be a permanent, static, definitive solution. Our job was always to correct a market failure, but actually provide opportunities for the industry to take more terrorism risk onto its own balance sheet and normalize the market. So we've always had that mandate, and therefore we've always been trying to evolve the scheme to return more risk and premium back to the private market. And and this is part of that. But the move from our facultative scheme, the proposed move from our fact scheme to a CAT treaty aggregate excess of loss scheme is really driven by four things, two of which I would say are sort of public policy objectives, and then there are a couple of other things. So the first thing is we are trying to increase the take-up of terrorism insurance across the UK. It's currently quite low, particularly among SMEs. It's probably mid-single-digit percentages. One of the things we're trying to do to get that insurance penetration level up is currently around about the 5-6% mark. That's based on a survey done not too long ago by the Federation of Small Businesses. The government would like to see that number higher because it thinks that actually if more businesses bought insurance, that would make the country more resilient to terrorism. And we've seen with the pandemic that a lot of SMEs aren't that economically resilient. It's two or three weeks they can't trade for whatever reason, whether it's denial of access to premises or whatever, and they're in real trouble. So they'd like to see that number go up. So the changes that we're making will help, I think, or at least encourage our members to reintegrate terrorism back into their standard property policy wordings. And that's really the holy grail. Because before the IRA came along in the early 90s with this mainland bombing campaign, when you bought your property insurance, terrorism was covered. And the IRA came along and it got excluded. And so the holy grail for us is to get back to that pre-1993 position where it's just part of your property uh, insurance cover. So we're making changes to the scheme that will hopefully encourage members to reintegrate terrorism back into standard property policy wording. That's the first key driver in a bid to try and increase penetration and bolster resilience. 
The second thing that we're trying to do is to return more risk and indeed more premium back to the private market. And that's something the government's very keen on because in doing so, we actually help to distance the British taxpayer from picking up the tab should there be a terrorism attack. Absolutely fair enough. How will it work in practice? Does this unleash competition in some sense? They've got to use the same tariff, I presume. I think it will inject more competition into the terrorism insurance market. That's something actually the, uh, the FCA have told us they're quite keen on. So the way we go about encouraging reintegration of terrorism cover is by moving from this fact scheme where risks are ceded to the pool by yeah. our member insurers on an individual per risk basis, where the price for that risk being ceded to the pool is based on a standard tariff yeah. scheme where the country is divided up into four zones. We're moving from that to a CAT treaty model where we'll say to our members, look, just give us all of your exposure and we'll charge you a single price to cover the totality of your portfolio. And it's completely up to you what you charge your underlying policyholder. You have much more flexibility to underwrite the risk in line with your own underwriting strategy and your own risk appetite. And the hope is that particularly for SMEs outside of peak zones, members will be able to put that cover back into their property policies for little or, or no cost. And that will see many, many more businesses covered without even asking. Because you, as the treaty underwriter, you'll be saying, well, that exposure is increasing, but you won't be worried about it because you know it's remote risk. Yeah. I mean, I think if these changes go ahead, we'll see a lot more exposure potentially in the pool re scheme, but not necessarily any more risk. Now, what will really drive our members' treaty prices will be their PML, their probable maximum loss in peak zones like around here in EC3. It won't be what they've got in the middle of nowhere in Scotland or in rural Derbyshire. So if they're wanting to write more exposure there, it won't necessarily drive their treaty price. Whereas at the moment, if they want to insure a bakery in Bakewell in Derbyshire for terrorism, they've got to charge them a price based on our tariff model. Yeah. So Right. Okay. So would you agree that I suppose as a class of business matures, then it is a natural tendency to move away from fairly proportional things to excess of loss structures. It seems to be a natural way that things go in insurance. I think that's right. And as well as moving to this CAT treaty model, we're also going to be bifurcating our retention structure, which is a bit of a pretentious way of saying we're going to be splitting terrorism between what we're calling conventional terrorism, which is basically yeah. bomb blast, yeah. and non-conventional terrorism, which is CBRN and cyber. Because members have been pretty clear with us that they've got limited appetite for non-conventional. So if we can break the peril in two, we can encourage our members to retain more risk on the conventional side, recognizing that their appetite will remain pretty limited on the non-conventional. And that's a way of, as I said earlier, returning risk and premium back to the private market and distancing the British taxpayer from the financial consequences of terrorism. So that's something the, the government's keen on. So those are the two big public policy drivers. It's reintegrating terrorism, if we can, back into standard property package policy wordings to increase terrorism insurance penetration and returning risk to the market to distance the British taxpayer. And just to unpick CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear? Oh, I should sure. give myself a gold star. Yeah. Which is really much the, the tail risk uh, in relation to terrorism. Yes, severe but unlikely. How's the membership sort of taking this mooted change generally as you've been out there, obviously to different stakeholders? It sounds like it's public policy, so presumably government's quite happy with the idea. How is the membership taking it? We've done a lot of consultation. We did a lot of consultation with members towards the back end of 2022, and we've been talking to our members really ever since. And actually, I should say that these proposals really came out of the last review process with HMT, with the Treasury, which kicked off back in 2020. And it was agreed as part of the outcome of that review that we would look at moving to a catastrophe treaty scheme. So this has been in the making for some time. I think what I would say is that members quite like the way the scheme operates at the moment. And so we've been quite 
keen to explain to members that there's a lot that's not changing about the scheme, right? So the, the cover that Pulri currently provides to our members, which is unlimited for terrorism, excessive member retention, that's not changing. That's the case today. It will remain the case. There's always inertia in insurance, isn't there? People don't like changing things. Yeah. And, but as I say, that's why I think it's important to make clear that a lot's not changing. So the cover's not changing. The government guarantee is not going anywhere. And that gives Pulri a Solvency II exemption, which has beneficial capital applications for Pulri and for our members, very importantly. And the rules of the scheme are not changing. And the rules of the scheme effectively just guard against adverse selection. They prevent Pulri becoming this residual toxic basket of the worst terrorism risk in the UK because we have the quote-all, bind-all and seed-all rules. So that's not changing. But I suppose the things that members have been asking us about and have concerns about are basically, what's it going to cost and how much are we going to have to retain? And the, the watchword for us as we've been making these changes or proposing these changes is stability. So actually, in year one, we'd expect the price to be pretty consistent with the tariff rates that members will be familiar with today. We're limiting through a cap and floor mechanism price rises and price decreases when we move to this treaty model to no more than plus 10 uh, or minus 4%. So that's going to help, I think, you know, guard against any kind of market disruption. And on the retention side, retentions will be broadly the same. Members will be able to buy down to their existing retention levels if they so choose. They'll be incentivized to retain a bit more than they currently are. But if they want to retain a lot more, they'll get a corresponding reduction in their premium. So members will have choice for the first time around their retention levels. Yeah, so they'll be talking to their reinsurance brokers and working it all out. And obviously, they'll be sitting with their own actuaries, with their own teams and working what's optimal for them, given how they want to write. Yeah. So again, as I say, it's giving members a lot more flexibility and choice around how they want to underwrite terrorism in line with their own risk appetite and strategy. I presume there's a lot less admin, a lot yeah. less just basic paperwork, lots and lots of sessions. Well, that's it. I mean, I think I mentioned at the, at the outset that there were sort of four reasons why we're doing it. And I mentioned the public policy ones, but one of the other reasons we're doing it is to take some frictional cost out of the way our scheme operates today. There won't be quarterly premium declarations needed anymore. And to make sure that the reinsurance scheme we operate is more aligned with an increasingly digital marketplace. And I think the fourth one, which I've touched on, is giving members that flexibility to underwrite in line with their risk appetite and strategy. I suppose they've got to have big minimum deposits, those kind of things. Yeah. All of the stuff that you'd expect to see in any normal CAT treaty, you'll probably get in the treaty we're rolling out. And we've been sharing the draft treaty contract now with our members. They've seen that. We've been sharing indicative pricing. So what a treaty contract in the new world will likely look like. First round of treaty pricing went out last year. The second round actually goes out today. As we speak, it's going out to members. So giving them good insights into what they can expect the pricing to look like in year one. I mentioned that the pricing will be broadly similar to the tariff rates that they know all about today. But actually, over time, we expect the pricing will become a bit more risk reflective. So that cap and floor I mentioned, where price increases will be no more than plus 10 and, and reductions no more than minus four, that corridor of stability will widen over time. I suppose and what you're really doing is you're encouraging traditional underwriting, i.e. the construction of a balanced diverse portfolio that makes more financial sense for them and for you. Yeah, I mean, the, the price that we charge will reflect the risk that the member brings to the pool and the retention that they choose to run. Whereas at the moment, we pull reset an aggregate retention for our members globally and then allocate it down to members in proportion to their premium contribution to the pool. And the price we charge at the moment under the tariff bears no relation to the member retention. Whether you're retaining 50 million or 50,000, you've got the same rates. Whereas in the new world, there will be a price that takes account of different retention levels. And what's the timetable for this change? If it were to be voted through, when's the vote? And, and when would it then be? Would it be 1125, I presume? 
Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one. Very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. Well, we're taking the proposals to a member vote in the second half of March of this year. So we're approaching sort of the business end of the appro- so approval soon. process, so quite soon. And if we get uh, approval from members in March, they then have a 12-month transition period to make any changes they would need to make to their operating systems before we would go live on the 1st of April. 2025. 1st of April. Oh, so it's, it's kind of very UK government date, isn't it? Or is well, we are now. It could be the 5th of April, couldn't it? Well, it's for the tax authorities. But no, no, 1st of April, which is when <laughs> our fiscal year. What about the market? Obviously, you, you're out in the market as a buyer of reinsurance, a buyer of retro, probably the largest retro contract in the terrorism market. Obviously, there's been a lot going on, and that's where you're stepping out of the UK market into the world terrorism market. What's that market like at the moment? Obviously, it's been through quite a lot. Obviously, we've seen the war-related side of that market has obviously had quite a lot of war to deal with. How's that market? Has it affected the proposition that you're bringing to them? And has pricing changed or appetites changed? As you're saying, we buy the largest terrorism retro placement in the world. It's two and a half billion pounds, which yep. includes the terrorism cap bond, which we issue, which is yep. a hundred million pound cap bond, which we issue here in the UK. And we're proud to do so as an arm's length body of the UK government. We bought our last slug of retro back in early 2022, which is quite a good time to be buying Mm. retro because the world then changed. And we buy a three-year deal. And we've typically in the past cancelled and replaced every year. We've always got three years, if you like, in the tank for reasons which I think are fairly evident given the war in Ukraine and and other stuff going on in that PVT market that you touched on. We chose to roll into year two and and we'll likely roll into year three. And I don't think that's news to our reinsurers because we've been very keen to communicate our intentions and our decisions to our reinsurers. And the reason we've rolled is because I think if we hadn't and we cancelled and replaced, we'd have ended up paying a lot more money for less capacity. And that would have been not a great deal for our members and not a great deal for the UK government. What's the point of having the option to sit on things for a couple of years if you don't use it when the world's in a bit of turmoil? (laughs) So we'll come back to the market in in March of next year. You know, I think we're reasonably confident that we could try and get the same degree of capacity, if not more. We'll have to see what the terms are. Clearly, a lot could happen between now and then. But we keep a close eye on what's going on in that market, working closely with Guy Carpenter. And, you know, we're obviously aware that there was a more orderly 1-1 this time around. So yes, the jury's out. We'll have to come and have another podcast with you after that big renewal. But previously, you were able to give a reduction, weren't you? You had reduced pricing. 
Yeah, back in 2022. So it's actually shortly after I joined. I think we announced the reductions in around April and they were effective as of October. Yeah. And we didn't give any reductions in Zone A, which is central London, but for zones outside of central London, we gave significant reductions of 20% or more, I think up to 30% in some cases. And that was really enabled by improvements in modeling and a better understanding and assessment of the threat that we face, as well as, I, I guess, a recognition that our mandate from government is to make terrorism insurance cover affordable and accessible for all businesses in the UK. And so, I mean, crudely, you know, the improvements we'd made to the modeling suggested that we could actually cope with a bit less premium than we've been receiving hitherto to deal with these sort of expected losses that our model suggested we might. Well, modeling's on my list of questions. So now you've mentioned it, we might as well bring it out. By the way, I think it's a PVT, which would be political violence and terrorism Sorry, market. Yes, That's yes. all right. Well, we'll educate you, Tom, into spelling out all of your three-letter abbreviations. On that, modeling must have come a long way the sophistication of the modelling. I remember, of course, in the insurance press, particularly after 9-11, so many insurance companies saying it's not modelable, and no one says that anymore. Obviously, it just hadn't been modelled before, and now it has been modelled a lot. So there's been a, a great increase in, uh, obviously, a lot of investment and increased sophistication in terrorism modelling. How far has it come, and how far is it likely to go in the future, particularly now we've got things like AI to help us do it quicker? Yeah. I mean, I think the like the fundamental tenets of probabilistic catastrophe modeling haven't changed fundamentally over the last 20 years or so, but computer power has got better and got cheaper, and our modeling certainly got more sophisticated, and we have a growing pricing actuarial team here. This is just better data. I mean, everyone will routinely geocode any physical asset they're insuring. Yeah, data quality has certainly improved, but the modeling that we do has improved. And we, we work with a number of academic partners, whether it's Cambridge University or Cranfield or Rusi or some of the intelligence services now, now that we're an arm's length body. And we model 27 terrorism subperils, things like you know, vehicle-borne EIDs, uh, marauding knife attack, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, aviation, non-damage business interruption. And we have frequency and severity assumptions for each of those, of those perils and feed them into our simulation engine to come up with an overall loss distribution, which then feeds the pricing. And we're using things like, for instance, computational fluid dynamics to understand what a bomb might do in terms of impact on a building and how the bomb blast would move around the building, et cetera. So we've got some quite sexy technology that's helping to improve our modeling. And I think that computing power is only going to improve and become cheaper and more powerful over time. I think you mentioned AI. I don't know, honestly, exactly what AI is going to do. I mean, who does to the way that we model risk? But certainly it's going to help us improve the way we do it. For instance, if you've got Google Street View, if you can use artificial intelligence to take a, an image of the UK, and, and I don't know how it does it, but it can kind of pick up or extract building information based on that Street View. And then yeah. you, can, you could potentially build a much richer data set, which then informs better modeling outputs. So you're just getting a much better handle on what you're exposed to. A more to accurate, time. richer data set would be key. We all know, you know, put better data into your model, you'll get better outputs. Yeah, and before I forget, RUSI is the Royal United Services Institute. And IED, is it IED or EID? It's improvised explosive devices. I'm IED, what did I say? Vehicle-borne IEDs. Yeah. There we go. So, yes, yeah, so like a car bomb. Yeah, vehicle-borne explosive, what are they called? Improvised explosive devices. Yes. And okay. Rusi, I should say, is, is the preeminent defense and security think tank in the world, actually. Yeah. And we have quite a close partnership with them, as well as with a number of other academic institutions to help us really understand the threat, and not just the threat today, but how it's evolving and how it might manifest itself five years hence. We heard a siren going off, and we're sitting near London Bridge, which actually has been a site of a marauding terrorist 
in Zim from what I know from about five or six years ago. What's the current state of play in terms of your assessment of the UK terror threat at the moment? Well, I think I'd say that over the last few years, it's been relatively benign. I mean, the official threat level remains substantial, which means that an attack is likely. And whilst I say it's been relatively benign, I think since 2017, there have been more than 40 late stage terrorism plots foiled by the counterterrorism police and intelligence services. And over that time, we have had, I think, at least 14 certified terrorism events, including Fishmongers Hall, which happened just here, actually, outside the window. Yeah. But also the Manchester Arena, the murder of Sir David Amos, etc., the marauding knife attack in Borough Market. So uh, relatively benign, but not entirely quiet. I mean, in terms of the threat, it continues to evolve. I mean, when we were first set up, we were set up because of the IRA. And back in those days, you had your card-carrying IRA member who was part of an organized hierarchical structure, and you kind of knew who your terrorist was. Terrorism today is more diffuse, I would suggest. And the threat, if you like, has moved from those sort of relatively well-ordered, structured terrorism organizations to low sophistication, lone wolf, self-initiated attacks. So typically the most likely terrorism event you'll probably see in the UK would be, let's say, a confused teenager who spent time in their bedroom, potentially during COVID online, radicalized and gone out and bought a bread knife from Robert Dias and gone on a marauding knife attack in Borough Market, let's say. That's probably the most likely form of terrorism event we'll see. In terms of the actual threat, the predominant threat remains from Islamist extremism. And that represents probably about three quarters of MI5's caseload today. But the growing threat comes from far-right extremism. And there's also probably, you know, a kind of residual catch-all cocktail of incoherent grievances, which are drawn from all sorts of different places and don't necessarily add up to a kind of coherent ideology, if you like. Middle-class liberals suddenly rampaging through Waitrose, but maybe not. Do you think the geopolitical situation of the world as it stands is more likely to feed more? That's, that's the question. I mean, geopolitics has got a lot fruitier. It's heating up, right? Because even this morning, you're reading about strikes between Pakistan and, and, Iran. and Iran. You've got the Houthis backed by the Iranians causing chaos in you know, civilian shipping lanes. You've got, obviously, the ongoing war in Ukraine and what weapons could fall out from that and where they could end up. And of course, you've got the events of October the 7th, which has given rise to this crisis in Gaza. So I think the presumption might be, oh, well, that must be changing the terrorism threat in the UK. I think I would probably rebut that at this stage and say that, and these things are always evidence-based and, and risk-based, the official threat level has not changed. I think at this point, there's no evidence that the threat has, has moved materially in the UK. But clearly, these events overseas will have some impact at some point, And I'm sure that's what the intelligence services are spending a lot of time concentrating on. If you look at feeding risk into a big hopper and it eventually does occasionally come out in the form of terrorist attacks right at the bottom, we've been feeding a lot more stuff, a lot more bulk into that hopper. And so you'd say yeah. in, in all balance of probabilities, it's more likely to come out and produce more risk at the I other end. I think so. And I think if you look more long term, I'd say two of the big drivers of terrorism will be climate change and population growth. And if you look at the parts of the world where you've got the two happening together, look at sub-Saharan Africa or parts of the Middle East, where you've got that cohort between 15 and 25, which is exploding in some of those countries. And actually, that's the cohort. It's, it's, it's men between 15 and 25, which, which typically uh, so, carry out terrorism so, events. Something about Chad losing the lake to climate change. If Chad's actually named after its lake, isn't it? And that has fueled a huge amount of problems in, in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, population growth and climate change means, well, there are going to be a lot of people on the move. And where are all these people coming? And the answer is, well, many of them will come north to Europe. And then the question is, will Europe let them in? And what sort of problems could that create?
create. So I think there are reasons to be a bit gloomy about what terrorism could look like in Europe over actually the remainder of this century, not to cause too much despair. So it sounds like Pulri is not going to be dissolved anytime soon. You're going to have plenty to deal with. Yeah, I don't think terrorism is over. Let's put it like that. As I said earlier, Pulri's job is to try and return risk and premium back to the private market. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's quite hard to see all the risk that sits on our balance sheet moving off at any time soon. Pulri over the years has expanded its coverage. Currently, you've got cyber, for example, physical damage from cyber, expanded coverage to business interruption over the years and been moving to make the coverage more relevant, more useful for its users. Anything else on that list? For example, cyber, business interruption following cyber, that kind of thing. Is there anything on your agenda to say, we'd love to be able to get this cover out there? First thing I'll say is, I think it's important that the cover we provide is as comprehensive as our stakeholders would expect it to be. I mean, worst case scenario is that there is a terrorism event or an event that certainly looks like terrorism, sounds like terrorism, smells like terrorism. And there we are saying, sorry, it's the wrong kind of terrorism. We don't cover that. It's the wrong kind of snow. Therein lies a reputational egg on face. And you're right, we have evolved the cover. We started off with fire and explosion. Post 9-11, we included CBRN, chemical, biological, yep. radiological, and nuclear. And then more recently, we've added non-damage business interruption. That was in the wake of Borough Market. Yep. And then also this remote cyber trigger. But the cover for cyber is limited to, to physical damage and first-party BI, or business interruption. But it's pretty limited. We don't cover loss of data, theft of money. And it has to be cyber terrorism. So it has to be an event which is certified by the government as an act of terrorism not war. And that's another whole issue about where the line of demarcation is. Yeah. So it's very limited. I would say just to your question, I don't think it's Pulri's job. And I think my board has the view that we shouldn't go proactively looking out for new things we can go and do. <laughs> I mean, if there is a case of clear and evident market failure and the insurance industry says, look, we can't deal with this on our own, we need a hand. We are very open-minded as to how we can help correct market failures, but we don't go looking for it. That said, I mean, if you look at terrorism, there are some areas that we don't currently address that we could potentially if people wanted us to. So I, I mentioned earlier residential property, CBRN for residential property. Our scheme doesn't cover that. Offshore infrastructure, so North Sea oil and gas assets, could they be terrorism targets? Again, we don't cover that. If you look at nuclear power stations, uh, Pulri Nuclear, our sister company, has recently been wound up. But actually, when these big facilities like Sizewell, Hinkley Point, et cetera, are built, and a whole series of other smaller modular reactors, if you're looking at billions and billions of total insured value in a single location, can the private market handle that? Or, or might there be a need for Pulri? Because at the moment, we don't do nuclear power stations once they're up and running. So yeah, there could be some other areas sticking with terrorism where the scheme's remit could expand. And then in terms of other perils, I mean, it's very early stages, but we are looking at cyber. We're looking at whether or not there could be a role for a, uh, some kind of government-backed cyber insurance scheme. And we're doing that in conjunction with other industry players. And, and if it's something that the industry thinks is a good idea, and we've got some sensible, pragmatic proposals, then we can go and have a conversation with people in Westminster in due course. But they're very early days. Are you going to be collaborating with the cyber monitoring centre that's uh, been mooted for the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the idea of that. I do quite like the idea of a parametric trigger in the cyberspace along the lines that CFC have been... Uh, yeah, no, we've had, yeah, had James Burns had on James the Burns and we, yeah, yeah, James is a great guy, actually. Because one of the issues with cyber is the question of attribution. And if you have a cyber event and then you spend years trying to answer the question, well, was it cyber terrorism? Was it cyber war? Was it cyber criminality? Was it state-sponsored? If it was state-sponsored, what was the provenance of the threat actor? 
mean, if that takes four years to decide, I think even very then, optimistic with four years. Well, <laughs> well, even then, you might only be eighty percent sure who it was because the intelligence services might only be eighty percent sure. They might not want to share their intelligence for very good reasons. And I think if you say, well, our job as the insurance industry is to pay claims as quickly as we can when people are in need, and waiting four years is probably not going to cut it. So if you had a parametric trigger which enabled claims to get paid to businesses in need far more quickly after the events, I mean, I, I can see absolute merit in exploring that. So. I, I quite like the idea of cutting through that lengthy, potentially contentious and litigious question of attribution and using parametric triggers. I'm sure there are all sorts of challenges which CFC are going to have to deal with, but I, I certainly welcome the action that they've taken. Back to UK specific things. We've got new legislation in the UK, protect duty legislation, or more popularly known in the UK as Martin's Law. Have we got more clarity around how that's going to be implemented? This is basically creating a duty of care or responsibility on venue owners to make sure that they have a kind of terrorism plan. They know what they're doing in the event of a terrorist attack. This is in the wake of the Manchester Arena bombings. Yeah, something? and Martin Hepp, for your listeners, if they're not aware, Martin Hepp tragically died on that night. And his mother, Fegan Murray, has become a friend of Paul Rhee. And Fegan's been leading the campaign for Martin's Law ever since. And the draft legislation came out last year and was scrutinised by the Home Affairs Select Committee. And there were questions around the proportionality of the draft bill, particularly for that standard tier, which is venues with maximum capacities between 100 and 800. Everyone knows the kind of community centre, the church hall, the scout hut, those kind of things. Do you think it's going to reach down as far no, as that? I mean, look, I think a lot of that was overblown, right? I mean, the idea that church halls are going to have to install panic rooms at 50k a go, or that a village face needs to erect a kind of 15-foot electric fence to stop the terrorists, and that's nonsense. Actually, that was never envisaged by those like Fegan who've been campaigning on this. So I think for the standard tier, much of what Martin's Law, I think, would bring about will be low cost or no cost. It's about awareness of the threat, having a plan, maybe doing some training, free online, not spending lots of money on... So it's on a bit things. more like doing a fire drill, but having it more tailored to potentially not the yeah, fire drill. it's like sensible, pragmatic, low cost or no cost measures to improve and enhance preparedness, um, which I think a lot of people would say is basically broad common sense. So we're very supportive of the legislation. To your question... Until we see the final bill, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But there is a, a second public consultation ongoing at the moment, which is six weeks, very much focused on the standard tier and questions around proportionality, which we just touched on. But I hope it'll reach royal assent later this year. One of the questions is, is how it will be enforced, because it's unclear who the regulator will be and how the regulator will go about ensuring that actually all these venues who are in scope are doing what they should be doing. Obviously, as Paul Rees matured, in, in recent years... Your relationship with the public sector has been much better defined, and you've been designated as a public sector body. How has that actually changed things in practice? You don't look like a civil servant necessarily. <laughs> how does it change in practice how you go about your business every day? A short answer, Mark, not a lot. I mean, fundamentally, becoming an arm's length body hasn't changed pullery materially. That said, we now have to comply with managing public money and the public contract regulations, which means you have to do government compliant procurement exercises. But to be honest, those sort of things I would regard as common sense. I mean, being a bit picky and choosy about who you partner with and who you it's bring on as a supplier is, is good governance, is good practice. You know, make sure you're getting value for money when you're spending it is, of course, good practice. So it's kind of stuff that I think good businesses are doing anyway. So no issue with that. And otherwise, I think it's really helped because I think it's helped our relationship with the Treasury, particularly the Home Office, where we invest in a number of national resilience initiatives through the Counter-Terrorism Alliance. 
but it's also given us better access to information from the counterterrorism police and some of the intelligence services. And we're now working more closely with them now that we're in the public sector fold in a way that perhaps we hadn't been as a private sector insurer. So I think there have been real pluses to being an arms length body. And actually, although the relationship with Treasury was a bit strained during the last review process, where there's some quite robust exchanges of view. Well, I mean, anybody who's accumulated a pot of money who is close to government in one way or another is always going to be under some kind of pressure to give some of it back. But I mean, I think we came through that review. I think the review actually ended up with some pretty sensible outcomes. And we've now developed a very good working relationship with the team at the Treasury and indeed with the team at the Home Office. And the Counterterrorism Alliance, which was set up by my predecessor some years ago, that was in something of a hiatus during the review process, but that's now been fully rejuvenated and we are committed to funding a number of meaningful needle-moving resilience initiatives with the Home Office. So that's great. How do you feel that you're viewed within those government circles? When you're walking in the room, they say, well, here comes trouble, or I don't know. (laughs) Well, I would hope we're seen as an effective arm's length body that's doing its job and addressing a market failure and also helping to return that risk back to the market and normalise the market. Because I said at the outset, we were not set up as a permanent fixture, a definitive or, or static fixture. So I think they'd see us making forward strides to do that. And the treaty proposals that we started talking about are part of normalizing the market. So hopefully they'd see us as an effective arms length body. The other point I'd make is, of course, since 2015, the government have monetized the backstop that they provide to Pool Reed. So we pay HMT 50% of our premium income and 25% of our bottom line profit. So in a reasonably good year, we're paying about a quarter of a billion pounds to the Treasury. It's an expensive top layer, but obviously it's unlimited. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd argue the Treasury does pretty well out of that. But I'd also say they do particularly well out of it, given that actually they've monetized a liability, which one might argue sits in their lap implicitly anyway. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, if there was no cover, then they would get it one way or another. It comes back to the whole issue of systemic risk, because you you talked about cyber earlier, but on the basis that the industry isn't set up to deal with systemic events, it can't because it's only got limited financial bandwidth. I would say you know, th- these risks sit implicitly with the government. So if they were to back some kind of cyber reinsurance scheme, they could actually monetize a risk which sits in their lap anyway, and at the same time help grow and develop a private insurance market that creates a private sector buffer sitting between the taxpayer and the systemic risk event. Puri's been involved in and been probably one of the main drivers behind getting together all the different terrorism pools around the world to share pool information and sort of swap war stories and other things. Obviously, you've already internationalized your liabilities to the extent that you've gone to the international global treaty market to buy very big slug of capacity. Do you think there might, like we've had with nuclear pools, for example, where you have international pools sort of reinsuring each other, do you think that might ever happen? Or would it be desirable? I think we should definitely explore it. I don't think it's likely to happen anytime soon. You're right. We do have great relationships with our sister companies around the world. And Poolry was instrumental in setting up IFTRIP, which is the International Forum of Terrorism Risk Insurance Pools. And you know we are the driving force, I'd say, within IFTRIP. Yeah, I think we should definitely look at whether or not we can sort of reinsure each other. I mean, I think there are questions around whether it would be palatable for so-called public money to be spent bailing out an overseas country that had experienced a terrorism attack. But I think we have to make the case. I mean, I haven't actually, if I'm honest, investigated it since I've, I've yeah. taken this job. It's just, it's just a detail. thought of mine, because obviously you see similar things happen with, with things like nuclear, for example, and we're all politically aligned. Obviously, you know, we've got NATO, so why not have NATO re, for example? I don't know. 
I love the ambition. I love the ambition. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm quite keen to do more with IFTRIP. And actually, the presidency of IFTRIP rotates. And at the moment, the Americans got it. And we're all going to Washington in April for our annual IFTRIP conference. And Stephen Seitz, who runs the Federal Insurance Office, is now the new president of IFTRIP. And he's very keen to play a uh, key role. And so it'll be interesting to see when we get together in April what some of the initiatives are that we'd like to explore. And this, I think, should be one of them. Excellent. Well, Tom, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've run through everything, unless there's something else that I've completely missed that we haven't touched on, then thanks so much for talking to me and uh, make sure you come back on soon. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, we, we didn't touch on a topic which actually I think really interests me personally and, and, and Paul Reed to an extent, which is sort of the whole issue of systemic risk. And I think if you just look at the first 23 years of the century we're living in, it's bookended by 9-11 and a land war in Europe with a global financial crisis and a worldwide pandemic in between. And those are just, if you like, the highlights. <laughs> so you, you ask yourself, what is the next 23 years going to bring? And the world is not getting any less dangerous or any less unstable. So I do think that public-private partnerships have a really important role to play. And I think governments need to think about how they can better prepare for and respond to significant economic shocks. Because we've seen, even just since 2008, a series of multi-billion pound fiscal interventions whether it was the bank bailout, or more recently, the furlough scheme, or even more recently, the energy price guarantee. I think every time there's a big economic shock caused by something, whatever it happens to be, if the answer is it's, it's multi-billion pounds of taxpayers' money, that's unsustainable. Because ultimately, all that does is fuel inflation, rack up debt, constrict public investment, and reduce the government's fiscal headroom for manoeuvre. And I do think that the industry, if we want to be relevant over the next 10 or 15 years, we have to work with governments as to how we can better mitigate risk and better respond to these sorts of shocks. Because I think we have a lot to offer. We have enormous resources around risk identification, risk modeling, risk management, not just risk transfer, and the ability to incentivize risk mitigation on an industrial scale. And I, I do think government should work more with the insurance industry to help enhance national resilience to these shocks, which I think undoubtedly will come. Yes. And I suppose just after the pandemic or during the pandemic, we had some of those committees and kind of conversations, but of course, this seemed to have dropped off the political agenda as quickly as they appeared. Do you think that's the conversation that we have to talk about? I mean, something, and obviously something with real diversification, of course. I think, yeah, I think the industry should be absolutely part of that conversation. I'd hope that government wanted to engage with us because they could see that we could be really helpful partners to them. Because I think actually, if your resilient strategy as a country is, well, look, we wait for these events to happen, these disasters to unfold, and then the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time gets his or her checkbook out and writes a very big check. That is a suboptimal resilient strategy. And I think what pools can do, certainly pre-funded pools can do, is pump liquidity back into an economy rapidly, predictably, and efficiently after a, an event, rather than being a government that's hastily scrambling around to put in place these ex post after the event yeah. sort of measures to keep business afloat, because those often lead to enormous amounts of waste and fraud and delay. And I think there is evidence that those countries that have invested heavily in ex ante resilience, so before the event resilience, see actually a less pronounced and a less prolonged economic downturn after the event than those that haven't. So yeah, I think there's a lot more we can do as an industry. I'm quite passionate about that. Certainly, yes. If you look at the economics study, the New Zealand earthquakes in Christchurch sort of 10 years ago, compare that to obviously Haiti, the balance of payments in New Zealand was absolutely phenomenal because that was by the private reinsurance market. They'd pre-funded that and sent that money around the world, and that money came back as a huge percentage of their GDP in a couple of quarters. Yeah. And it was just reinsurance payments. It was yeah, and I, and I don't think some governments really appreciate how amazing 
the private insurance market and reinsurance market is. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think no, we it was a proud moment for me because they will look at the New Zealand balance of payments this quarter. So that's all insurance. That's all reinsurance money coming into the country. Yeah. So I think, you know, whether it's, you know, climate change or some kind of catastrophic cyber or, or pandemic, I think we definitely have a role to play and we need to face into these issues in conjunction with governments around the world to see what we can do. I say both in terms of risk mitigation, which I'd argue is actually almost more important than risk transfer because prevention is cheaper than cure. Well, Tom, thank you so much. There's so much more to talk about. We'll have to do another podcast soon. Thank you so much. Enjoyed that. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>